Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, primalized listeners, it's time to get wise as we cover some very insightful Q&A sent to headquarters info at primalblueprintpublishing.com. See what's up. We want to hear from you. And we will talk through this on a future Q&A show. We're here to help. We have a great team of passionate, interested people trying to live primally in a hectic, high-stress, modern world full of distractions, hyperconnectivity, and all kinds of momentum against healthy, ancestral-inspired living. So let's do the best we can, right? Have fun while we're at it. And covering some questions today. The first one is from Kevlin, and he says, Doug, Doug McGuff, my main man, Doug McGuff, author of Body by Science, co-author of a Primal Prescription, and a great resource for advanced fitness goals, as well as blending his uh, experience as a uh, physician in mainstream medicine. He's an emergency room doctor in South Carolina, and he knows what real people are doing every day to get healthy and then uh, to not be healthy. So uh, I love listening to him. You can look for some shows he's been on the uh, podcast before. Uh, but Kevlin mentions uh, how Doug McGuff was recommending the Primal Endurance program to him. And it seems there is some contrasting information between Primal Endurance and Doug's book, Body by Science, that I appreciate help clarifying. Doug recommends working out and doing high intensity once per week. Primal Endurance recommends high intensity workouts only after an aerobic period. I guess the difference is Doug's book is mostly for strength training. Primal Endurance is predominantly endurance. Is it not possible to get the best of both worlds? So, yeah, to clear everything up here, uh, the, the book, the program, Primal Endurance, the online uh, multimedia course, we are trying to uh, assist those with uh, endurance aspirations. So if you want to do the half marathon, marathon, mini triathlon, full triathlon, ultra marathon, uh, these are... Uh, prominent endurance goals. They're very popular. You could even count like the adventure racing. Anything with a huge endurance component uh, is what the uh, the program is designed for. So if you want to uh, achieve your endurance goals and reach your potential, uh, the vast majority of your energy is going to be devoted to aerobic conditioning, to building your endurance base so that you can perform for two hours, three hours, 10 hours, whatever it is. And so these high-intensity workouts that have a wonderful fitness benefit are an extremely important component of a overall balanced fitness program and can even greatly assist the endurance athlete with uh, performance breakthroughs. However, uh, they take a lot of energy, they require a lot of recovery time, and so if you're envisioning your uh, weekly energy expenditure, let's say in a pie chart, 
right? You got to have your job in there, your personal duties and family responsibilities. And then the rest of the pie is how much energy you have for training. Uh, a huge slice of the pie should be devoted to aerobic conditioning and only a small slice to the explosive high intensity workouts because they don't uh, correlate strongly to your performance goal. So if you have a endurance goal. This is going to conflict with the goal of, let's say, staying in shape, delaying the aging process, minimizing injury risk, being able to perform in a variety of fitness endeavors, such as weekend warrior activities, like jumping into a pickup basketball game or playing one game of flag football at your college reunion without tearing a meniscus, uh, you know, going into the gym and being able to make your way through uh, the series of machines without being uh, sore and unable to put on your t-shirt the next day. So we do have to weigh the importance of your endurance goal with the benefits of having a well-balanced, broad-based fitness program promoting longevity. And in many cases, especially if you train uh, inappropriately, your ambitious endurance goals are going to be in direct conflict with your health and with your longevity because they're so strenuous and most people overtrain, exceed their aerobic heart rate routinely, training in what we call the black hole. That's the scientist term for that. And that's where you're training uh, kind of hard, as Dave Scott calls it, uh, in that no man's land where the workout is slightly too stressful to deliver uh, the optimal aerobic benefit. And then uh, the accumulation of slightly too stressful workouts uh, will lead to invariably lead to breakdown, burnout, illness, and injury. And that's why we see the high injury rate in the endurance sports, even though they're gentle, straight ahead sports. All kinds of runners are getting injured every year. The stats are staggering. It's something like, oh, is it a third of all runners get injured every single year? So, like a third of the time, a third of the runners are injured at any point in time. <laughs> Come on, people. So, if you slow down, uh, engage in uh, mobility, flexibility, and strength building uh, alternative fitness activities instead of just running straight ahead or pedaling or swimming or whatever you're doing, you know, put in a little bit of uh, broad-based fitness endeavors in there, you're going to fare much better. Uh, that's not something that a lot of endurance athletes want to hear because they're so gung-ho. They want to go straight forward and put in more mileage. Uh, but the path to success is in many ways, many occasions, slow down to go faster. That's why it says that on the cover uh, of our book, Primal Endurance. So back to the question with Doug McGuff and the recommendation of doing high-intensity strength training once a week. Uh, that's a wonderful general recommendation. Primal Blueprint recommends uh, twice a week to do some form of uh, brief explosive high-intensity strength training session, whether it's body weight, whether it's machines, uh, whether it's a, uh, a guided workout, whatever you like to do to get explosive and do something that's intense. And a couple times a week is plenty for just about everybody. Uh, once a week is a good goal too. So if, if that's written somewhere in Doug's book, yeah, get into the gym once a week and push yourself with these intense workouts where you're putting your body under resistance load, whether it's a push-up or hoisting heavy weight. Now, for the endurance athlete, uh, as Kevlin uh, mentions in the, the letter, um, we're talking about periodization uh, in terms of getting to peak performance goals. And so periodization means uh, structuring your calendar year into uh, different blocks of training where different types of training is emphasized. 
in particular, uh, it's highly recommended to dedicate a certain period of the year to strictly aerobic base building. So all workouts are conducted at a very comfortable pace at a heart rate of 180 minus your age in beats per minute or below or well below. So a lot of endurance athletes get confused there and think that all their workouts uh, could be or should be at 180 minus age, which isn't even that difficult. But the power of doing very nurturing, very uh, low intensity workouts that uh, burn fat, don't stress the body, don't require recovery time, and then you can build and build and build. That's why you hear the legends of the great uh, athletes in every single endurance sports for at least the past 60 years, dating back to Arthur Lydiard uh, in the early 60s, uh, have come to success and won their Olympic gold medals with an over-distance approach where they put in hours and hours and hours of aerobic conditioning at a low heart rate in order to perform uh, in the high-intensity arena when it's time to compete. So for everyone, this aerobic base building period, everyone with endurance goals will benefit from doing two to three months of just jogging or easy pedaling on the bike, building the body, building the body. Then as the periodization model calls for, after you complete this aerobic base building period, if you have strong endurance goals for the season, then you can introduce these shorter duration uh, periods of featuring high intensity training. And during these periods, yeah, you get into the gym a couple times a week, you do a sprint workout once a week, but you can greatly reduce your training volume, your hours of training by backing off those long duration aerobic workouts that you just focused on in the previous training period. So this concept is going back decades and strongly validated by sports science as well as the performances of lead athletes in every sport. Uh, when you focus on different types of training, all your energy and all your recovery energy can be dedicated to the specific type of training that you're focusing on. So you build this wonderful base and you become a strong endurance machine and then when you go in and do some intensity, you're going to get a huge fitness boost in a short time because finally you're hitting it hard and putting the gas pedal down and doing some fast bike rides or hitting the hills uh, with some intensity or doing some sprints. And so your improvement rate is going to be really nice if you do an intense period correctly. You don't overdo it, of course. It doesn't require that much uh uh, volume. And then a mistake a lot of endurance athletes make is trying to preserve uh, their high volume while they're throwing in intensity. Uh, in other words, let's say uh, wanting to hit that benchmark of cycling for 100 miles a week or running for 40 miles a week while they're also introducing uh, the explosive work in the gym or the sprint workouts. So during the uh, intensity period, you can just forget about that long duration stuff for a while. The intensity period should only last a maximum of three to four weeks. That's from Dr. Phil Maffetone. Maybe two to three weeks is more like it. So let's envision that you take a few months just jogging, pedaling your bicycling easy, doing the cardio machines at 180 minus your age. Then you take a dedicated two to three week period where you're hitting the weights, you're doing some sprint workouts, maybe you're doing some fun stuff like you're doing a box jumping workout or a CrossFit session, uh, but that only lasts for a couple weeks. Then the next 
item on the list in the periodization schedule is a rest period. So you take a break and for a week you don't think about training. Uh, maybe you're going to do some hiking or keep active. Finally rake the leaves and the pine cones out of your yard. I'm not talking about sitting on a couch and we're talking about a rest week, but a recovery week where you're doing uh, low stress, short duration, uh, getting a mental break from the uh, the high complexity of trying to fit training into your busy life. And then you will repeat the cycle uh, throughout the competitive season where you have a base building period. Then perhaps you have a competitive period. So it's intensity or uh, putting in races on the schedule because those count as intensity, obviously. And so if you have, you know, a couple races planned or three races planned uh, in a month period of time, then you're going to back off, take a break, you're going to rebuild your base, and then you're going to go in and do a few more races. So that's kind of an ideal look at someone with uh, ambitious endurance goals, managing them appropriately with periodization. Now, if you just have that overall uh, healthy, balanced, fit lifestyle, uh, delay the aging process, uh minimize disease risk, then when you're looking at a more balanced training program, yes, the cardiovascular, the aerobic conditioning is a hugely important element of that. But here's the thing. This is what all the science is showing, that it's quite easy to max out your aerobic benefits to the point where you have maximum heart disease protection, maximum cardiovascular conditioning uh, in only a handful of hours per week. So you don't need 20 hours on the bicycle or running 50, 60, 70 miles per week like most recreational marathoners are doing. Uh, That's in many occasions overkill. It's way more than you need to be designated as an A plus grade recipient uh, with aerobic conditioning. So that's an interesting one to think about. I can direct you over to a TED Talk by Dr. James O'Keefe, and it's called uh, Run for Your Life, uh, but not too far and at a slow pace. And he talks about uh, this uh, curve or this this bell curve you can envision where uh, your maximum aerobic benefits will kick in at around uh, two and a half hours a week. Dr. Kenneth Cooper at the Aerobics Institute in Texas uh, has been conveying this message uh, similarly for quite some time, that if you put in a few hours a week of comfortably paced cardiovascular exercise in the aerobic heart rate zones, you are going to be an aerobic masterpiece. And anything beyond that is purely for uh, competitive or fitness goals. So if you're going beyond what would this be? Like, you know, jogging a couple days a week and pedaling your bicycle uh, for an hour on the weekend. If you go beyond that bare minimum, you're going for something other than health and uh, general disease protection. So if that's true, then how can we fill in these missing pieces and become uh, the lean, mean fitness machine that we dream of? And that's when the intensity comes in. And the great news about that, and this was uh, Mark Sisson's first wonderful revelation communicating the, the beauty of the Primal Blueprint approach, that it's not time-consuming, it's not strenuous, it's not going to break you down, because high-intensity workouts are very short in duration, and you don't perform them very frequently. Twice a week is plenty. So if you have two strength training sessions of 10 to 30 minutes per week, lasting that time, uh, a sprint workout where the... Uh, the performance, the high intensity output is only for a total of a few minutes total. 
in the workout. Maybe the workout's going to take 20, 25 minutes with the warm up and the drills. You can see me doing all the great drills and technique, uh, refinement on YouTube, uh, Brad Kern's sprinting drills. You can search for that or Brad Kern's running technique instruction. So if you go out there for a proper sprint workout, hopefully a weight bearing sprint, that's one of the greatest benefits accrue for the, um, uh, fat reduction and the bone density, connective tissue strengthening because of the impact. But if you can't do that and you want to sprint on the bike, that's fine too. You're still going to get the wonderful hormonal benefits, but this is a very short duration workout. So if we're talking about a few hours of cardio per week, we're talking about a couple strength training sessions lasting between 10 and 30 minutes and a sprint workout lasting, what, 20 minutes, you're going to get into the elite category of a really fit individual who's aging gracefully. I shouldn't say elite, like you're competing in something elite, because obviously that takes uh, some more ambition and some more focus training, but you're going to get an A plus in fitness in general terms if you can bag that bare minimum objective. And I should also throw in the uh, objective to conduct micro workouts, because I think this is one of the greatest breakthroughs we've seen in the fitness industry in decades. The idea that just doing a single set of squats at your work desk throughout the day, or one set of pull-ups as you walk under the doorway to your closet and adding these little miniature bursts of explosive energy throughout the day can have a phenomenal impact on your fitness and on your fitness progress and your performance in the full-length workouts that I just described. So if you can lead this healthy, active lifestyle of uh, reaching a very modest uh, hourly commitment to fitness every week that I just described, as well as uh, breaking up prolonged periods of stillness with these micro-workouts or at least movement breaks, you are going to have... Uh, amazing potential for transformation, uh, getting away from that struggle and suffer, that no pain, no cane scene where you're getting injured and broken down, you're getting a cold every winter, you're getting bronchitis every couple of years due to overly stressful fitness ambitions. Boy, I would love for everyone listening to kind of buy into this concept that it does not require hours of pain and suffering and sacrifice if just doing it right uh, is the wonderful insight that we're getting uh, today from the the great leaders in um, in fitness. Uh, maybe you've heard of uh, Firas Zahabi. He's a noted MMA trainer. He just had a great, um, or I saw a great clip of his on YouTube uh, from his appearance on Joe Rogan podcast, where he said he doesn't like his athletes to get sore. <laughs> he doesn't want them to get tired or sore after workouts. And Joe Rogan's like. What the F are you talking about, man? I'm, I'm sore and tired after every workout. And what he conveyed was that if you can train within yourself at all times where you don't need to break the body down with these crazy-ass workouts that generate muscle soreness and fatigue in the hours afterward, oh my gosh, then you're able to be more consistent with your training. He says, I value consistency over intensity. And you've heard me talk about Dr. Craig Marker and his landmark post, which I direct you to read over at breakingmuscle.com. You can just Google the title, Hit Versus Hurt, H-I-I-T versus H-I-R-T by Dr. Craig Marker. And it will change your fitness life. And he's talking about the Uh, exhausting, depleting nature of the very popular high-intensity interval training sessions is too much for the body and can be highly counterproductive to both your fitness progress 
as well as your health. So when you do a workout, like a classic spin class where they want you to sprint 10 times for 30 seconds uh, and, and 30 seconds rest, what's happening as you try to make these intervals with insufficient rest is that you are actually breaking down the cellular framework in your body. You're, you're engaging in what's called uh, disassembling and deamination of the structural proteins in your cells to fuel these bursts of energy that happen over and over and over in your typical grueling, uh, prolonged, high-intensity interval training workout. And yes, you feel great at the end and energized and invigorated that you had another great workout, you're dripping in sweat, but inside your body, bad things is happening. And Dr. Marker uh, talks you through the science in a very easy-to-understand way in the article. Uh, but the important uh, notion to remember is that if you keep trying to uh, repeat an impressive performance, such as a 30-second output on the bike uh, with 30 seconds rest and do it again and again, what's going to happen is the cumulative fatigue and the cellular breakdown that occurred during the workout and the depleting nature of the workout, depleting your muscle glycogen, is going to leave you uh, a piece of crap at the end of the workout. And you're going to need to walk right over from the gym to Jamba Juice to boost your sagging blood sugar levels with a medium smoothie and a, a healthy breakfast scone. And you've seen this uh, written up in our books, uh, painting that uh, bleak picture where you burn so many calories at the workout. You do a high intensity spin class of 45 minutes, you burn 650 calories, and then you go to Jamba Juice and you consume 650 calories. And then, uh, Due to the compensation theory, one of the great uh, scientific insights of recent years, uh, it's amazing to note that the body has assorted compensatory mechanisms to where you will burn fewer calories and feel lazier the rest of the day after an overly stressful workout. And so many of us in the fitness community uh, have sort of been socialized into this uh, mode where we go and push ourselves hard wherever, on the roads, in the gym, whatever, putting in that work, feeling good in terms of our ego and our accomplishments and our ability to write down in our training, training log a nice impressive number. But the cumulative fatigue and breakdown caused by these workouts uh, is a big fat bad news. So if you are able to just turn the dial back a little bit and make sure that your workouts aren't too uh, punishing, that you're going to wake up the next morning sore and stiff. And in the case of your cardiovascular sessions, make sure that that pace, that energy output is in the aerobic zone rather than drifting into the black hole. You're going to have a much greater return on your training investment, which with much less risk of downside of breakdown, burnout, illness, and injury. Uh, here's another uh, phenomenal insight recently coming to us from the great uh, Kenyan marathoner, Iluid Kipchoge, uh, widely regarded as the greatest uh, endurance runner who has ever lived on earth. Uh, this guy is a machine. He's unbelievable. He's won the Olympic gold. He's won the world championships. And he broke the phenomenal two-hour marathon barrier with that special uh, made-for orchestrated effort with pacers. Some people criticized it. But look, the guy ran a marathon in under two hours. Uh, that requires a pace per mile of, I believe, 4 minutes and 38 seconds. 
So those high school uh, track kids who are listening, you know how fast a 438 is. I don't know if mom and dad do, but anybody who's wondering uh, the extraordinary significance of this human's performance running a 159 marathon, go to your local high school running track and try to run even a half a lap at 438 pace. We're talking about uh, a, a minute 10 or minute nine coming through for one lap and half a lap would be if you try to run a 35 second uh, and you're in good shape, you're a good athlete on the weekend warrior basketball team or whatever you're doing, it feels like a full sprint. And this is what Kipchoge is doing for 26 consecutive miles. He's running what most observers would experience to be a full sprint if they tried to join him on the race course. So uh, putting him into the uh, conversation here, uh, because what he did was he put his uh, training log on the internet for all to peruse. And uh, a lot of scientists and coaches travel over to uh, the I-10 Kenya area where he lives, the Great Rift Valley, where all the great runners train, the great endurance runners of the planet are concentrated there like no other concentration of athletic talent in any sport. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, so a lot of people there studying them, watching them, filming them. You can find their workouts filmed on YouTube. Uh, but Kipchoge's training log reveals that he is running well within himself almost all the time except for when he's towing the line on a major marathon in Berlin or London or wherever he's racing for the appearance fee of $300,000, uh, which is uh, when Kenya's annual per capita income is $3,000. Uh, it's a pretty big deal. <laughs> he's a pretty wealthy guy, deservedly so for what he's accomplished. But most of his workouts are well within his uh, capabilities, his maximum. He's running about 80% of max at many, many of his workouts. Now, if you saw him running down your street or if you saw him in Central Park uh, a couple days before the New York Marathon uh, doing some final preparations, it would look like he was flying because he's in such great shape. But relatively speaking, if he's running at 80% capacity, it's not that hard. Try it with your own heart rate and think about it because that 180 minus age usually comes out to be uh, 73-75% of your maximum capacity. So it's kind of an aerobic uh, heart rate limit that he's training at most of the time, very consistently, 120 to 130 miles per week, week in and week out with minimal tapering or minimal fall off ever, even before a major race. So the guy is just like a machine who's humming along at a nice cruising pace. You could equate it to... Uh, driving in your uh, manual transmission car in third gear uh, without pushing the gas too hard where the thing starts making noise and you have to shift. So he's cruising along in third gear almost all the time, feeling wonderfully fit, energetic, happy, healthy. Uh, he's a great philosopher. He has some amazing quotes, this guy Kipchoge. So look him up and learn a, learn a bit more about him. But the revelation of his training log was a real big one, uh, for, especially for people deep in the endurance game. Uh, one of the listeners to the show wrote me to say uh, that he and his roommate are both highly accomplished uh, American college athletes, Division One cross-country and track runners. Uh, the, the person who wrote in mentioned that his roommate was a sub four minute miler, which is a great distinction and represents uh, elite level for a college athlete in America, but by no means uh, Olympic caliber or uh, elite uh, professional performer. And he said he was tripping out because uh, the workouts of the great Kipchoge were easier <laughs> than, than his workouts. In other words, this college kid 
who was a great athlete uh, performing wonderfully, uh, was pushing himself harder than the greatest marathoner of all time. And of course, all kinds of peril comes with that, uh, especially with um, the immune system, uh, getting injuries, and also regressing because your workouts are too difficult. And so that's why I love the... um, uh, the comment from Zahabi that said he doesn't want his athletes getting sore after workouts. And I'm trying to take that to heart because I get sore all the time, man. <laughs> I can't help it. I feel like I enjoy myself so much when I'm doing my ambitious workouts, whether it's high jump practice or doing the fun stuff that I put on my Instagram. And when I'm in the house pulling this, uh, the tubes and the cords and, you know, you want to get in there, you want to get something done, you're motivated, you're focused. And then I wake up the next day going, oh, okay, so those uh, uh, those side-to-side sumo kettlebell moves were a little bit too much for me, and now my butt's all sore. And uh, most of the time we see that as a badge of honor, but if we want to look at muscle soreness as sort of a mistake or a sign that you've overdone it, obviously muscle soreness also accrues when you do something uh, unusual, foreign, that you haven't prepared for yet. So when you're easing into a new workout modality... Yeah, you do something super easy, well within your means, and you get a tremendous fitness benefit by being consistent with your approach. So I'm taking this to heart when I go out and do my high jump practices. Um, I'm trying not to uh, kill myself out there. Even though I love it so much, I just pull the plug before I'm completely exhausted. And then I can go back and do it uh, another time the same week instead of having these long duration recovery periods. I mean, recovering from muscle soreness, I don't know about you, listener, but when you're in the, the 50 plus age group, sometimes it takes several days for your muscles to get right and to feel snappy and energetic uh, later for another good workout. Ah, okay, that was a nice long uh, diatribe answering a single question, uh, but we definitely want to convey that idea that if you have specific endurance goals, you're going to have a little different approach to someone who has just the basic general goal of being healthy and fit. Okay, I think this might be part of the same question from Kevlin, getting a little sciency here, uh, but some good stuff. So the question is, when the type 2B or the fast glycolytic muscle fibers used for high intensity, uh, will they compromise the fat-to-carb burning ratio and destroy the aerobic base built previously? Do fast glycolytic muscles only burn glucose, hence the name glycolytic? I was wondering if I can do high-intensity strength training once a week, uh, high-intensity sprinting, uh, but without uh, affecting my uh, aerobic performance is the essence of this uh, lengthy question, Okay. So if you're not familiar with muscle fiber types, we have the oxidative slow twitch muscle fibers, and then we have the fast twitch muscle fibers. And the fast twitch muscle fibers are categorized as uh, oxidative or non-oxidative. So the pure fast twitch muscle fibers are now uh, labeled type 2X. They used to be called type 2A. Now they're called type 2X. And then the type 2B fast twitch muscle fibers are the oxidative fast twitch muscle fibers, which can be trained to perform endurance capability as well as explosive fast twitch capability. So they have the uh, the trainability aspect uh, depending on what your workouts are like. So that is the origination of the question. Uh, if you are doing a bunch of uh, explosive high-intensity work, strength training, sprinting, uh, you're training these type 2B fast twitch muscle fibers to be able to use oxygen and perform for 
uh, longer periods, is that going to compromise um, your goals uh, in either direction? And I was listening to a recent podcast with uh, Dr. Anthony Galpin, who seems to be uh, an authority in this area of studying muscle fiber types and trainability. And he gave some interesting insights, uh, one of them being that uh, we have a very high uh, trainability potential regardless of our genetic attributes, uh, which some people sort of discount. They think that you're born an endurance athlete or you have the endurance genes and then you have the sprinting, jumping genes and the crossover is uh, minimal. Now, if you're looking at the uh, 100 meters starting line in the Olympics, uh, you're going to see people who are at the extreme edge of explosive high-performance muscle fiber types and uh, corresponding training patterns such that I don't think Usain Bolt is going to be the guy I want to pick on my uh, 5K relay team or my marathon relay team, right? So he's extremely fast twitch, high performing uh, for short duration explosive events. Um, they, the, the book, The Sports Gene by David Epstein uh, talks about your genetics and how they relate to your uh, athletic potential, uh, observing that this has been observed uh, by another book called Taboo by John Entine, uh, that 496 of the fastest 500 times ever in the 100-meter dash come from athletes of West African descent, where there's a higher concentration of fast-twitch muscle fibers, as opposed to, let's say, in East Africa, where 80% of the world's leading endurance runners uh, emanate from, and they are pure endurance athletes built for endurance with tremendous genetics for endurance, uh, just like the counterparts in West Africa have the genetics for uh, high intensity. But when we're looking at elite performers, we're looking at the extreme outliers. So for most of us, I don't know if you've done your DNA fit genetic testing yet, but you can test your ratio of fast twitch explosive muscle fiber to uh, oxidative endurance muscle fibers and get an interesting insight about how you might uh, structure your training program. I was shocked to discover that I was 56% uh, strength power and only 44% endurance, being that my background was an extreme endurance performer uh, in triathlon. So the point of the conversation, and this is what Galpin explained on his podcast, was that um, the the presence of the pure fast twitch, the type 2X, are very, very low. So most people have only a, a small percentage uh, that are extreme fast twitch. He mentioned one Olympic or world-level hurdler uh, who had 24%, and that was extremely high, where most of us have 3 4 5%. And so sort of almost irrelevant to the question of uh, if I train myself, can I perform well in uh, disparate uh, events? And the important takeaway point was that the fatigue factor of training is going to be the most prominent variable rather than worrying about uh, wh whether you're, you're compromising your aerobic potential by training the, the type 2B muscle fibers to lift heavy weights or sprint. In other words, if you're doing uh, 10, 15 hours a week uh, climbing mountains on your bicycle and swimming laps, you are fatiguing those muscle fibers as you train them, of course, but that's not going to uh, help your potential if you've uh, been dared a hundred thousand dollars to dunk a basketball in six months. So if you've been if you've uh, taken that bet, uh, you're going to want to dramatically tone down the endurance workouts or don't do them at all. I'd say 
uh, and instead train those muscle fibers exclusively for uh, strength and power. And they're going to respond wonderfully uh, to the extent that your genetics uh, support that. And maybe you're never going to be able to dunk. Certain people just don't have the um, the baseline to get to that goal. But you can make tremendous progress uh, in either direction. So even if you come and test with a high percentage of fast twitch muscle fibers, uh, like my report, um, I was able to uh, train in in you know heavy endurance mode for many many years and build competency where my type two B fibers were contributing a lot to uh, my aerobic performance. So I wouldn't worry about it as much as directing your training uh, in alignment with your uh, most important fitness goals. So again, if you want to run a 100-mile ultramarathon run, jumping up and down on the box in the CrossFit class does give a fitness benefit, but the cost in terms of recovery and in terms of energy output is going to be better directed. You're going to get a better return on investment from just going out there and jogging and getting stronger and stronger and stronger at those aerobic heart rates and very few and far between uh, introducing some high intensity. But I would definitely do it once in a while, even if I was talking to an athlete who was preparing for a 100-mile run or a 26.2-mile run. Uh, Guess what happens when your slow-twitch muscle fibers fatigue? You get a general dull ache in those areas. So if you've ever been running and hit mile 18 or whenever you start to have the wheels fall off, all of a sudden your lower back just aches and your hip flexors just ache and your hamstrings start to ache. And that is the sign that the oxidative slow twitch muscle fibers be getting super tired because you just ran 18 miles or rode your bike for 97. At that point, what the body is forced to do is to recruit the fast twitch oxidative type 2B fibers to perform uh, endurance. And so if you have trained those a little bit with some sprinting in the previous months before your marathon or your 100-mile bike ride, if you've trained those with box jumps and uh, fun stuff like that, they are going to be able to respond even when you're asking them not to jump up and down on the box, but to run eight more miles for you to get to the marathon finish line. So that's the cool thing about the trainability aspect of everyone, regardless of our specific genetics. Sound good? Okay. Uh, write me in if you uh, want further clarification or we need to drill down further, but I'm trying to pull away with the, uh, the general insights of uh, recommending a broad-based fitness program unless you have extreme endurance goals. So uh, here comes Sean writing in about my comment on a previous show where uh, I was noticing on my speed golf practices that my heart rate actually increases when I stop running and take a golf swing. <laughs> uh, which is kind of weird. You know, like I'm running along at the right pace. I stop, take a swing, and then the heart rate monitor starts to beep. In other words, I've exceeded my aerobic limit. So the golf swing was harder than the running pace. And Sean says, I believe this is in part because large muscles such as the quads help the heart pump blood throughout their use. And when you abruptly stop using the quads from running, right, your heart needs to pick up the slack. The same thing happens when you stop for a swing. When I lower my heart rate on the ergometer, uh, the fitness machine, the most effective thing I have found is to lip sync my strokes to pantomime his strokes. The ergometer, I guess, is the rowing machine um, to pantomime the strokes with minimal tension on the chain. But you're going through the full range of motion still with minimal effort. Make sense, people? 
So because he's still recruiting those muscles rather than bringing them to a dead stop, he doesn't put the strain on the heart to have to pump further uh, to manage the um, the immediate cessation of exercise. Uh, consider that interrupting your run. One, there is a finite hysteresis between reducing physical work and the reduction of heart rate cells cells are still in deficit and two instantaneous and near complete removal of the mechanical assistance of large muscle groups pumping blood through stretching and contraction cycles of your stride so there we go man we bring in a little science some exercise physiology into the show how about that i think the takeaway there is uh instead of abruptly stopping uh you know continue to pantomime those motions and it won't be as stressful on the heart. You won't get that heart rate spike. James Hall is our final questionnaire, one of our favorite listeners and frequent writer with really insightful comments back to me after the shows. And he says, I have an idea uh, for a show or a blog article um, relating to everything you uh, know now regarding primal and keto and things like HRV, uh, reflecting back uh, from when you were a racer on the pro triathlon circuit, how different would your training, diet, and lifestyle have looked? Uh, Would the fundamentals have stayed the same, but with a few tweaks? What do you think? Hey, cool question. Thanks for asking. So, geez, I've been done racing uh, for... um, uh, 25 years, man. <laughs> yeah, so I was in the um, uh, elite triathlon scene from uh, the years of 1986 through 1994. Um, interesting, if you're watching the Lance Armstrong documentary now, you'll learn that the mid-90s uh, represented the uh, advent of the performance-enhancing red blood cell-making drug EPO, which absolutely transformed uh, the state of endurance sports. So my career ended before the uh, introduction of EPO into the the scene and the tremendous performance improvement that that brought that basically uh, shattered the, uh, the playing field and made it uh, sort of, as Lance described in the show, uh, you were obligated to dope with this product if you wanted to be competitive because it could provide up to a 10% advantage. Uh, that's what the documentary said. I've read the science uh, quoted that a 6% advantage is delivered when you are uh, artificially enhancing, enhancing your uh, red blood cell content with the performance-enhancing drug EPO. And so if you think about a two-hour triathlon, which is usually what I was racing, uh, a 6% advantage would be about six minutes, right? 120-minute race, uh, 5% advantage is six minutes, so six and a half, seven minutes, uh, which is basically uh, me winning every single race, uh, jogging it in the last few miles, uh, taking a shower, and then congratulating second place. So absolutely uh, mind-blowing, life-changing if you're an athlete in those times uh, when doping has pervaded your sport. Uh, so I appreciated the opportunity to compete in what we all believe to be was a clean sport. Uh, I was subject uh, subsequently uh, proved wrong that there were a few uh, select athletes who were caught using uh, anabolic steroids, which also provides an advantage, just not the extreme advantage that EPO does. Uh, so that was kind of disappointing to me. Uh, but when you have the belief system that you're competing on a level playing field, and when you have the uh, the the moral code that you're not going and looking for 
uh, an opportunity to cheat uh, yourself, right? I always believed that if I wanted to uh, cheat, I could go work for Ivan Bosky or somebody and make much more money cheating on Wall Street than I would uh, trying to go a little bit faster in triathlon from using performance-enhancing drugs. So it was kind of a, a non-issue uh, until the day arrived that uh, people could just absolutely destroy you. A vastly inferior athlete could all of a sudden catch and pass you uh, just by uh, adding the uh, doping element to the training regimen. So that was kind of an aside there, uh, but I, I thought uh, it was an interesting point to talk about it because the uh, documentary is going on now, and um, it's a pretty heavy issue that requires a lot of reflection when you think about um, how different the sport is when there's um, uh, the, the the doping option available. Whew. So anyway, back to my thing. I was trying to be the cleanest burning machine possible. I didn't even take ibuprofen or alcohol or anything into my body for that 10-year period of my career, not even caffeine, because I wanted to experience the full weight of whatever it was, my fatigue, you know, if I woke up and felt a little groggy and stiff and heavy, I did not want to consume a cup of coffee to get me going uh, because I felt like that was an artificial central nervous system stimulant that would mask my fatigue, that I would, I would much be much better off in the long run appreciating and managing my training decisions accordingly, okay? So looking back, I thought, I now feel like that was a great strategy and I was able to have some longevity in my career and some form of consistency because I didn't dig myself these huge overtraining holes uh, by virtue of taking uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories to ease up my stiff lower back and have a better workout and then, uh, you know, pay the consequences later. Same with caffeine. I felt like I was going to pay the consequences later. So the clean approach worked for me. As far as my diet, I was pretty committed to uh, choosing healthy foods. But of course, back then, uh, we didn't know any better. And we had the grain-based diet was considered uh, a picture of health. Uh, you know, the um, the brown rice bowls with uh, tofu and broccoli and whatever else was deemed to be of uh, the highest caliber for the high-performing athlete. So that's the one regret I have or uh, the, the I wish category is if I had uh, been able to apply the modern science, especially becoming a fat-adapted endurance athlete, has so many benefits for recovery, for inflammation control, for immune support, and all the uh, destructive effects of the high-sugar diet and the high consumption of the performance agents like the bars and the gels and the drinks where we were just slamming so much sugar uh, just to get through the workouts because we were in that carbohydrate dependency paradigm. And I think what you get from that is uh, not only some health consequences like suppressed immune function, but I think you get more inflammation and more oxidative stress from consuming a high carbohydrate diet than you would consuming a nutrient-dense ancestral style, uh, relatively higher in fat and completely devoid of nutrient-deficient uh, refined carbohydrates. And so now the great endurance performers uh, that are exploring this cutting edge, uh, the guy that ran 100 miles in training on no food. Yes, Mike McKnight, ultra runner uh, during the quarantine, right? There's no races on the schedule. So he just banged out a 100 miler on no calories. <laughs> so 
uh, go look him up. Uh, Google his story. It's pretty fantastic. Represents the cutting edge. My friend Dude Spellings, frequent podcast guest, uh, reporting back from his uh, epic uh, rim to rim to rim crossing of the Grand Canyon. It's about 50 miles with 12,000 feet of elevation gain. And he did it on, he attempted to do it on no calories. He took a little bit of, uh, I think, uh, coconut butter or something because his legs were going dead when he had to climb out of the Grand Canyon. So he was allowed to have a few hundred calories on this 13-hour effort. But what was extraordinary is what he did at the finish line. Uh, And instead of feasting on the stack of hot pizzas that his support crew had ordered up for him and the fellow runners, he went into his tent and elected to fast for another 12 hours after this amazing endurance performance. Because in a fasted state, we know that cell repair is enhanced, immune function is enhanced, inflammation and oxidative stress are reduced better than any other time and any other food you can put into your mouth. So he enhanced his recovery by fasting overnight instead of stuffing his face. I know that sounds a little bit weird, and maybe some of that pleasure of uh, completing... uh, uh, a great endurance achievement or any kind of uh, tough workout is you get to go pig out when you're done. But think about the uh, the ramifications, the extraordinary uh, insight into the future of endurance performance that guys like Mike McKnight or Dude Spellings are showing. Uh, it's pretty awesome. And so, boy, if I had anything back, I would have cleaned up that diet, gotten rid of all that sugar, and probably performed and recovered better. And then finally, as I've talked about earlier in the show, this idea, this concept of reducing the stress impact of your workouts uh, from the great work of Dr. Craig Marker, uh, the idea that uh, Phil Maffetone also uh, shared this with me, that he doesn't like uh, the idea of getting sore after workouts either. So uh, the great uh, MMA trainer, Maffetone, Dr. Marker, all these voices are coming forward saying, look, you don't have to kill yourself in training to become a a fit athlete. And I left a lot of energy out there on the training course with these epic workouts that we did that we thought were necessary uh, in order to ascend from the seventh place finish that you turned in at the last race and you want to go get a first place someday. So you got to push yourself a little harder because some dude's out there biking or swimming faster than you. Uh, so it's a really tricky thing when you get up to uh, the elite level where the uh, incremental improvements are so difficult. So in other words, if I wanted to go from one one hour 48 to 146.30 uh, in an Olympic distance triathlon, a mile swim, a 24-mile bike, and a 10K run, um, a 148 is pretty darn fast in the first place, right? It's not like I'm going from two hours and five to one hours and 55. Uh, that just involves getting on your bike and pedaling more miles. It's not that hard to make those uh, improvements when you have some cushion. But when you get down to near your potential, when you're already working hard and putting in a lot of hours, oh, those incremental improvements are really hard to fathom. And I think uh, I personally made the error of pushing myself too hard in training in pursuit of those incremental improvements. And in many cases over the years of my career, it left me on the sidelines or in the back of the pack rather than moving from uh, fifth to third to eventually first. So I think you have to play the long game, uh, with, especially with uh, peak performance and ambitious performance goals, and be patient and let that process of improvement happen naturally. 
And I remember uh, challenging Dr. Maffetone on this during our series of uh, filmed interviews for the Primal Endurance Mastery course. So she signed up for the course and get access to these never-before-seen videos with the great Maffetone hanging out at his crib in Arizona for hours and hours of video. And I said, wait a second, you know, if you are indeed coming in eighth place or seventh and you want to get on the podium and it's just not happening, uh, you would think that the path to getting there is pushing yourself and, and killing yourself a little more in training and moving up the pack. And he said, not really. He made a convincing argument that you don't really need to train the explosive anaerobic muscle fibers very much because they're, uh, they don't use oxygen. So they don't respond to training like a aerobic muscle fiber would. And they require tons of recovery time when you do use them as they're intended with explosive workouts or, you know, fast paced uh, quarters on the track. In my example, as a, as a triathlete, um, and you certainly don't need to train your brain to suffer because the brain can do that anyway. If you already have a highly motivated, driven endurance athlete, I don't need to practice hurting uh, under, under a, a, an intense pace. I can save that for race weekend and do much better, right? Because I haven't broken my will with a whole shit ton of hard workouts that are tiring me out and then, then putting myself on a race starting line. So knowing those insights... Uh, I said to Maffetone, well, then what gives? Like, how do you move up in the pack? And he says, you don't. <laughs> it's just your genetics are being revealed now. So if you're a four-hour and 20-minute marathoner and you've been working hard and training and someday dreaming of breaking four hours, um, you can probably do it if you train correctly, but you might not ever be uh, the three-hour and seven-minute marathoner that your next-door neighbor is or your uh, college buddy, uh, because the, the trainability is genetic and uh, your baseline uh, VO2 max, some of your genetic, uh, your aerobic potential has some genetic influences. So we want to get the most out of our genetics, of course. But in my case, that tremendous amount of frustration that I experienced from not being first place in every single race, right? Uh, and, and wanting to solve that equation, maybe it was unsolvable. And maybe, uh, they, you know, I was destined to be at my very best uh, winning the races that I did, coming in third when I did, coming in seventh when I did, and so on. So that, James, are some of my uh, reflections 25 years later. But mainly the diet, I think, would have been the big one. Actually, ahead of diet would have been uh, reducing the overall accumulative stress impact of my training schedule, just being kinder and more gentle to my body. And then, of course, throwing down the hammer once in a while when I was motivated, rested, and energized, but just not needing to do it so often or to such an extreme and saving everything for race day. Hey, everybody, thanks for listening. And send me your questions, info at primalblueprintpublishing.com. Have a great day and train smart. Hey, Primal Blueprint listeners, no dairy in your life? No problem. Primal Kitchen has you covered because our no dairy vodka sauce is made with avocado oil and organic cashew butter so you can ditch the dairy and keep the decadent taste you love. Made without gluten, soy, canola oil, or artificial ingredients, this vegan plant-based sauce is paleo certified. Visit us at primalkitchen.com for more real food options from dairy-free Alfredo sauce to tomato basil marinara and a whole host of other delicious products the entire family will love. Hi folks, Mark Sisson here. 
If you found your way to the Primal Path and want to help others live primally too, then visit PrimalHealthCoach.com to learn how you can join our mission to help 100 million people reclaim their health and how you can turn your passion for wellness into a profitable health coaching career that you love. The world needs health coaches. The world needs you. So visit PrimalHealthCoach.com today to learn more.